0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to M Pavilion. My name is Jen Zalinska and I'm the manager of public programs. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Yalakut Willem as the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. The Yalakut Willem part of the Boon Wurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kuhn Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and to the future. Tonight, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Tasha Finney to present this keynote lecture on domesticity, I'm Trapped, Radical Experimentation in Housing. Dr. Tasha Finney is an, is an architectural urbanist, senior research tutor and program lead on the M.A.C. City Design course at the Royal College of Art in London. Is joined in Melbourne by five students from the MA City Design course to participate in a week-long symposium at M Pavilion to explore questions around who we are together and what is home. The symposium started today with a series of talks by a range of housing experts and architects and will continue throughout the rest of the week with tours, site visits and roundtable discussions. So I'd like to, thank, like to say thank you to everyone who has given their time to be involved this week. I also want to say a particular thank you to James Henry and Fiona Newman from Housing Choice Australia who have helped to provide us with the site at Abswerth House that the students will use as a case study to explore these questions. The students will be here on Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m. talking through their findings um, and showcasing their presentations. So I invite you all to join us then also. And I'll hand over to Tasha to present this evening's lecture.
1: Yeah. I'm a, I'm I'll just move back and forth, I'll just, I'll just move back and forth if that's okay. Um, so thank you very much for having me and before I start I'd just like to also acknowledge the tra- traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on and pay my respect to their elders and leadership past, present and of course into the future and I'd like to add coming to you from London that it's time that we got rid of our English head of state and it's time that we looked after ourselves, so I'd like to say that at the beginning. Um, And I'd like to thank Jen because Jen has um, just been the most fantastic host for us in organising everything today and she's worked incredibly hard and been very patient. So thank you, Jen. Um, And also thank you... Yeah, thank you. (laughs) And thank you also to to Catherine, um, Andy and Alexis who gave the fantastic presentation before me tonight. And I think there'll be lots of overlap in their presentation with what I'm speaking about and um, what some of the other presentations that you've heard today, if you've been here all day, we've had a fantastic lineup of speakers. Um, And I guess what I want to just say at the outset and and the thing that will be slightly different in what I'm presenting compared to the other things that we've been hearing today is that The focus of my research at the RCA and the work that we're doing in the MA City Design that I lead and and the work that we're doing as part of the intergenerational cities research stream that I also lead is always to do with looking for the site of experimentation into housing. We're really interested in the question of why it's difficult to change housing and how we find the conditions for experimentation. So it's a slightly different sort of ground for investigation than the question of is cooperative housing good or bad? Is, you know, is one form of housing better or another? What I'm really interested in understanding is the relationship between the disciplinary practice of architecture and the professional practice of architecture as a discipline, which is a different thing and its relationship to knowledge. And where the very, very fine and difficult sweet spot is where one thing has an iterative relationship with the other, because change is rare and difficult to achieve. And despite the fact that we tell ourselves as architects that everything we do is about innovation and change and novelty and yada, 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 if you look through the history of housing, particularly from the middle to the late 19th century till now, actually very little has changed. So I'm going to speak about that Um, And I'm going to give a a bit of sort of background as to why we think that's the case and then begin to indicate where we're starting to see change and how to look for it. So just to give you a quick introduction of of this idea, these ideas that we're throwing around. There's house, home, domesticity. And it's really important to start to recognise that when I speak about the house or when I I speak about the house, I'm speaking about something that's a material object. When I'm speaking about home, it's usually tinged with a notion of nostalgia. And when I'm speaking about domesticity, what I'm talking about is a diagrammatic, socio-political set of relationships held in space that's key to the functioning of modernity itself. And it's key to the success of cities within modernity. And so they're very, very different concepts and it's really useful understanding that difference. But I just want to open with this, and some of our other speakers earlier this morning also did the same thing and sort of spoke about the child's house, what we understand, why, why, why we can sort of notice or we identify there's a certain signification around house. And I always think this work by Gordon Clark, which I'm sure all of you know, but I have such a clear memory of the first time I saw this when I went to my own graduate studies at the Architectural Association a long, long time ago now And And I was showing this, and I remember looking at it and sort of being completely mesmerised by the fact that it's classically a children's drawing of a house. It's got a pitched roof, it's got two eyes, it's got a sort of mouth of its porch, it's got a chimney. You know, it has all of the elements that we understand to be housing... And yet Gordon Matter Clark did this extraordinary thing with it where he took a chainsaw through the middle of it and cracked it in half, right? And I had a kind of visceral, like visceral response to this the first time I saw it. And I think that, like, really kind of emotional response to it, I found very curious. And I've spent a long time trying to think, well, what is it about home that's embodied in that image that when it's cut in half makes me viscerally... Afe- viscerally affects me and how, how can I understand that? And just to run through a few more f- images there from Gordon Clark, you can see sort of the way that he's really aggressively taken apart this building. So I think the thing, one of the things that came up this morning that I really want to kind of clarify is that, um, is that What's going on with housing? And, and I want to and I'm, I'm going to go through a kind of bit of 19th century history around the development of something that we call um, spatial reasoning and its relationship to domesticity. But I just want to sort of say that um, I think there's something very, very powerful that happens to us and through us as architects when we design and when we go through design experimentation where we're both um, subject and object of the diagram. And it's a really particular and acute condition that we have as architects, where um, I'm always both an architect working on the drawing on the object of domesticity in the same moment that I'm subject to the drawing and subject to my, mini- my design manipulations. So I'm always two things. I, I can empathize with the figure in the drawing, while I move it around, while it's an object for me, and I'm, I am that figure. And I'm always in that drawing, mother, sister, daughter, wife, lover, cousin, aunt. My role is always given to me. Everything that can be said about me in that space is already given to me by the spatial performance and hierarchies of that, of that organisation and that diagram. So I'm just going to talk to you a little bit about how we might understand... That, how that has emerged. So these are two key key drawings that we diagrams that we talk about in the MA City Design program. One of them I'll probably talk less about today, which is the neighborhood unit drawing that first emerged in 1929 as part of the regional plan for New York. And the one on the right is much more important and that I think many of you will have come across before. And it's the 1851 model apartment for four families that Henry Roberts did as part of the International Exposition and that Robin Evans has published and is very well known. And, um, and what, we, what, we, what we, we understand both of these drawings to be important because they're scale-based strategic exemplar diagrams of the socio-political organisation of bodies in space. And this is what we understood, we understand housing to be, that it emerges in the 19th century as a technology for cleaving apart small units of population out of an undifferentiated urban field so that they can be governed, so that we can raise healthy children, because healthy children mean healthy armies and healthy workforces, because organised populations of people mean organised urban Populations, which mean that there's less and less danger of contagion, which of course we're seeing at the moment and how that plays out with the individualisation and the separation of bodies in space. It means that there's less danger of things like riot and of, um, of, of, of um, revolution. So all of the, the housing, we can directly relate that plan to these moments of needing to organise cities. But to speak about it, really, one needs to speak about a whole series of technologies, this idea that space emerges as a unique thing to be reasoned about. And, and the author, French author Francois Chouaille, who's writing I really love and I would really encourage you to read her if you don't know her work, describes in The Rule and the Model this, the uniqueness of spatial reasoning. She says that, you know, before the 19th century... We had these very complex buildings, very, you know, if you think of the mosques and the churches, the complex city spaces through Europe. But there was never a single text that described space as a thing to be organised. There was never a single piece of writing that spoke about space. It wasn't until the early 19th century that that really begins to emerge. So, of course, it gets picked up, and many of you will have seen this in, in the organization of prisoners. So, with the idea that the prisoner, the body of the, the prisoner was capable of um, redemption, that one didn't just punish the body. The idea of, well, what do you do with that body? How do you reform that body? And so many of the very early experiments um, in in spatial reasoning were through the penitentiary and through the prison. And this is, of course, um, Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon from the late 18th century. Um, Again, it's a strategic exemplar diagram. It was never built like this, but it forms the yardstick um, against which we test everything else we know about the penitentiary. And the key thing to understanding how it works is that prisoners are in individual cells. There's a a prison guard that stands in the middle. The cells are backlit from light coming in from the outside. So it's very difficult for them to see who's in the centre and the idea being that they will constantly be thinking about and rectifying their behaviour in, in, um, the, uh, in the space of surveillance in relationship to someone else. The key point is in relationship to someone else. And I always found it really useful when I first started looking at this stuff to look at what the prison looked like before, right? Because we don't... I, you know, I didn't know very much about prisons at this stage and I assumed they all looked like the kind of prisons now we have that are excised out to the edge of the city. But, of course, prisons before the 19th century were right in the middle of the city. They weren't something that was excised out to the edge of the city. If you look at this as a small piece of urban fabric and the prison here this is the Marshall Say prison was actually sitting tucked right in here and the entry point is down a side lane here it wasn't until the early 19th century that prisoners weren't allowed to keep animals with them in prison that prisoners had jobs there were pubs and there were um uh meeting houses in the prison because of course prisoners took staff with them into prison they paid rent back to the state for being in prison if they were bad enough they were physically punished while they're in prison and they did business while they're in prison and of course this is a kind of this is a pub that belonged to the prison but by the 19th century and this is Pentonville prison that was built at the time on the edge of London but now of course is in the middle of London you get a variation on Bentham's panopticon but this time it's with Um, long corridors, but again, the same backlit cells. So each prisoner is individualized and each is accounted for in his or her own space. And they even went to the, when they were experimenting with all of these ideas, they went to the point of when they took them out for, um, for exercise, they would put hoods over their faces so they couldn't see anyone around them. They would then have them on ropes so that they could exercise. And of course, people very quickly went very, very mad under those conditions. And it was as a ca- and they had to then pull back a whole lot of these experiments. But there's a, you know, huge body of literature outlining how this process of spatializing and individualizing, in relationship with someone else, that um, that the, the prison and the prisoner underwent during this period. So for a lot of the work we do is thinking more well, than how do we think about housing? Right, the story we tell ourselves about housing that emerged at this, this t- during this time, is that housing is somehow ahistorical right? The the way that we live in families, we've been doing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, right? That we've... When we were in caves together, you know, caveman and cave cave mother sat around a a fire, a a hearth in the middle of the cave, and we had children together. And and that somehow we've just kind of emerged fully formed into that that kind of family grouping. But what we've been starting to look at, and what my research... Um, has been looking at for a long time is that is how we understand the relationship between this spatial reasoning and and the constitution of the modern family itself as a kind of technology in the same way that prisons were for dealing with and cultivating an idea of subjectivity and the self. Um, And so this is where we come back to the There's single family dwelling. So of course what you're looking at here is two apartments. Um, This is the, uh, Henry Roberts always had two apartments and I'll go through it in a bit more detail later. But all of you will recognise if you just blank off one side of that the hierarchy of rooms. If you were to walk into that space you know exactly what happens in this big room that's different to what happens in these three rooms, one of which is larger and two are exactly the same size. Because this is the period of the cultivation of childhood and the cultivation of gender as a specific condition. And it's all happening in these spaces but I want to just tell you one more story and it's going to be very difficult to tell you with this drawing (laughs) let me describe it to you this is um, this is um, the Booth's poverty map of London and for those of you that don't know this and this is a really extraordinary piece of drawing it's based on an 18th century cartographic map of London but it's the first time that any socio-demographic, socio-economic data was spatialized in a drawing and it was colour coded and it was the result of door-to-door, the door-to-door census collection of information about families. Typically, it was collected by righteous members of the community, so school teachers, um, clergymen, people like this. And it was a judgment call on the kind of um, people that were living in, these, in the dwellings. And it was cut, and you can see it a little bit, probably, hopefully a little bit better in this drawing. But if you just focus on the one on the right, the, um, you'll notice that the red is the well-to-do um, occupants. And they typically hug the high streets where there's more light and more air and it's easier access. And the poorer um, occupants, who are dark colours, the black being the worst... Um, are more densely packed in, more, in denser areas. This is the key. So you can see that the, it, this is East London, it's around Brick Lane, uh, Whitechapel Road here and, um, and Bethnal Green up the top, Bethnal Green Road. And you can see that these are the high streets so you get very red areas and then you have the, what's called the lowest class, the vicious and the semi-criminal in black and the very poor and the casual and the chronic want. And there's a relationship between colour and labor mobility and labor you are either in work or you're out of work and an, and a sense of contagion of the the contagion of morality so you were understand as the lowest class the vicious and the semi criminal to be very bad news bad for your neighbors a bad influence and that you and that there needed to be a cleaning up of the city it was difficult to police these parts of the city it was difficult for policing to get in there families were living in 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 squalid conditions, there was a lot of muckraking journalism happening at the time that would describe living conditions like this, lots of people out of work, children living with adults, everyone sleeping together in a single room up the top, people living in the basement in the damp conditions, unhealthy conditions, living rooms that came straight in off the street rather than having some kind of vestibule and... um, it was understood that there was a problem in the city and these things needed to be cleared up. But, of course, looking at this from the outside, it's very easy to go, oh, isn't that a question of poverty, right? Isn't that a question of, um, of London being full of poor people? But then if you look at a city like Berlin at the same period, and I'm just going to run through these because they're going to be very difficult to see on this screen. All, most of you know, I'm sure, that have been to Berlin. It has the most fantastic block structure. And typically the way that the Berlin block structure works is that you have a series of courtyard buildings um, running from street to street with a kind of diminishing courtyard between the buildings. And it's best illustrated in the, in the drawing on the right, um, where you've got um, the most light coming in for the buildings on either, at either end, and then diminishing light in the courtyards in between. And typically this is what a floor plan would have looked like of all of those things. And typically, this is what a floor would have looked like of these, and, and it's very difficult to see. But what you had was a family would have two rooms, but they weren't two rooms adjacent to each other. They were two rooms across a corridor. So the um, boss family had a living space on one side and a kitchen space on the other, or the Spaulding family had their living space on one side and their kitchen on the other, and they all of them on this floor shared one bathroom, and they all shared a stair. So you can imagine on a weeknight, school night, everyone's home for supper, that corridor would be an incredibly busy place, like going back and forth. I mean, there would be families mixing up. Everyone would be sharing things. No one would would know whose children were where, whose husband was where, whose wife was where, right? This is a dangerous space. But this is how um, Berlin was organised, right? So you can't put it down to a kind of cultural difference in the UK. Like, cities were organised like this, a kind of... Undifferentiated urban field of life, right, as opposed to the radically brittle divisions of public and private that we understand our cities to be now. So we go back to Booth's poverty map, and you can see, wow, danger up here in the dark blue and the dark and the black. And so, you know, and there was all of this, um, all of this literature happening at the time describing the Jago, which is where that, uh, which was a slum where that, where that dark colours were. And so this is, this is the solution, is, um, is, uh, is this drawing. This drawing becomes the mechanism that's used for slum clearance in London in the 19th century. For those of you that have been down to Brick Lane and been to, to uh, Columbia Road and the market's down there, I'll just run through this. It's um, Arnold Circus that is the social housing project that's built at, with the de- demolition of that slum. So there's a direct relationship at multiple scales between a capacity to reason spatially in the city to link socioeconomic data and labour conditions into the city for the first time and to propose in the same gesture a spatial solution and the spatial solution is housing. And this is... How we've got to where we are. This is just running through some images of Arnold Circus, and then of course, you know, the ni- late 19th century, the early 20th century rolls on, and we've got this logic of housing in place. It's a much more complex story in terms of um, how these reform, this social reform and philanthropic movement plays out between the working class and the middle class. There's a fa- there's fantastic um, initiatives at the same time that ask for middle and upper middle class women to come back out of the casinos of London to take back control of their children from their, their working class staff because they need to take responsibility for raising their children. They shouldn't be out doing social work, There's the work of the family, the work of the social in the city that they need to come back into the family and also so that they can allow their working... Their their staff to go and educate themselves. So there's a, the social reform movement is working in two directions, and really by the 1920s and 30s, there was a kind of single direction of housing. And this is, you know, with the, these kind of consequences, these kind of logics, the bottom image is of New York, and the top is of one of Le Corbusier's proposals for, um, for Paris. But this is a very, very long way of describing to you how did we get here in our cities and I'm telling you this because we all want change. I mean seriously right it is not working for us and I'm going to run through for you now a series of reasons why it's not working for us. The concentrated urban core, the low density periphery of cities like this is a classic North American city, the the sprawl that we developed as a system of repetition, the logic of repetition that combines finance and construction systems is not something that's producing for us either the kind of resilience that we know that, we've, that we need to respond to the kind of challenges that we saw over summer or to the uh, major structural and infrastructural scale that we need to respond to climate change. Because more and more, of course, we're seeing those environments like this, Right? And the thing that always struck me that was so extraordinary about Hurricane Katrina, once I got over the incredible beauty of these images, I mean, I don't know whether, maybe it's just being an architect and it's, you know, it's a bit off, but I really, you know, they're so, like, look at this one. They're so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I love it, you know, houses in water, all that sort of thing. But, of course, the images started becoming a little bit more alarming, you know, in coming out of Hurricane Katrina and then we saw this and then we saw this. And then, of course, we saw this. And, of course, you just think, what the actual fuck? You know, what is wrong with this country that they could end up in a position like this where civil society could be so white-anted and the ability for this group of people to respond to a situation like that could be so bad? And I have to say that there is one great thing about Australia, and that is I think we're very good at organising ourselves in response to um, natural disaster. Of course, we have to deal with it quite a lot. So more and more, we're seeing ourselves either with flood or with fire or with all of the um, consequences of uh, an amplifying extremity of climate. Um, and of course, it has a consequence for our non-human neighbours and our non-human kin. You know, how do we find, how do we begin to find a logic of inhabitation that can extend beyond just the human? How do we decenter the human and we begin to think differently about a different kind of um, relationship to complex ecologies? Which means we have to question housing. And I think because of the kind of really, really dense and complex knowledge. Structures that are contained within the diagrammatic condition of domesticity, it's very, very difficult for us to unpick them. And so, again, I I say what we're really looking looking for is the conditions of experimentation. But, of course, that's also because we have ageing populations, which some people have said is almost like a more difficult problem, a more challenging problem that's going to come to us than climate change. So just some figures for you. You may not have seen these. They're the same in Australia as they are from the UK. Uh, By 2050, the number of over-65s will quadruple. Um, And this is the killer. For the eight largest economies, that will require savings and pensions of $400 trillion, which is five times the size of the current global economy. And we know that we can no longer base our economy on um, infinite growth. Like, where do we go from here? You know, it's like, where do we go from here? And of course, there's another thing going on that's been spoken about a lot today, which is, that, um, is the question of um, the consequence of housing affordability, and I won't really spend too much time on that because everyone's struggling with it, but we are making this argument to ourselves about um, innovation and creative economies, but we know that if you pay more than 30% of your income in housing costs, it's very difficult to take risks, to like find somewhere to start a new job, to take a risk on starting something up. So if we're not allowing young people to have affordable housing, we're actually inhibiting our capacity um, as an economy to really fully engage in that. Um, and so all of this, all of this um, labour mobility, transformations in labour structures, uh, changes in the way we're working, changes in all these things, means that a lot of also the familial structures that we used to have for looking after our ageing populations no longer exist, and that's a real problem. So the question is, if the current family housing that we have isn't allowing us to develop broader notions of kinship relationships, of finding where we find intimacy and care. How can we begin to find where it's being experimented experimented with right and I'm not talking about one off experiments any architect can throw you any number of drawings of housing that challenges this where the really difficult thing is is within the specifics of the legal and regulatory environment that things are being built within the financial restrictions where is housing being built and I think that Andy and um, um, Catherine (laughs) is that right yeah, good, okay, thank you. Catherine and Alexa's work is really fantastic, is that um, it's really doing that hard work. It's very, very difficult work. So um, I'm just going to skip through these, and I'm going to show you, I hope, right, where we think this is happening. So this is some work that's very difficult to see that one of my graduate student, students, Lana Lyshik, Um, has started to do, looking at... First of all, analysing the way that the um, model apartment works. So the fact that... And just let me describe it to you, because you already know. First of all, we recognise there's a spatial hierarchy. Um, So there's the living space and then there's the bedrooms. And within the bedrooms, of course, the parents' bedroom takes precedent over the equal-sized children's bedrooms. Then the next thing to know is that there's spaces spaces of individualisation where we cultivate ourselves... And there's spaces where we come back together and we watch each other, right? And that that iterative relationship between the two is really, really important. The other important thing is that for that to happen, the rooms have to be cul-de-sacs. They have to be one way in and one way out. And they have to be separated from their neighbours because the family needs to be known and identified, right? So they have to be um, separated. And so... And that's how it works. So even so, just to reiterate, and I put this up here, it's Glenn's work, but I show this to students in London. Um, even when you look at a floor plan and you look at that initially and go, oh, surely it's not doing the same thing. You know, if you were to diagram this out, it is doing exactly the same thing. There is, It is so, it's so seldom that you see any kind of single housing that isn't doing the same thing. You have a larger bedroom for the parents, two equal-sized bedrooms that may be children's bedrooms, they may be guest bedrooms, it doesn't matter. There's one, in this case, there's two large spaces coming back together in a kitchen and they're separated all there is is more space between things more air between things but fundamentally the diagram is the same but Lana looked at a whole lot of projects and what she came what she realized was that actually there's one project that really challenges that and really really adjusts it and you may know this it's an extension um, to a housing project that Lacaton and Vassal did in France called uh, Tourbois And it's a genius project where what they did is took an existing tower block and they said, we have a terrible history of failure with decanting residents from public housing and putting them back in. It never works. What we want to do is develop a system where everyone stays in their apartment, but all we do is knock the window, the external windows to the floor, add about two metres to the outside edge of the building and create what they're calling a new winter garden on the edge. Um, And we can leave the people in their apartment. We can upgrade the apartments, give them more more space and problem solved without any of the challenges of decanting. But what they did in doing that, and this is a diagram. This is a diagram of the original building. So these are the bedrooms. Um, They were on an outside wall, like like the apartments we've been looking at. They're cul-de-sacs. They came together in a living space. But in putting this additional space on the outside here, what they created was instead of cul-de-sacs, a circular movement through the apartment, which is a radical transformation of the functioning of the diagram. And it's this kind of um, small, really, really small, fine-grained incremental transformation that we're looking at. And these have been... This is a project that's been incredibly well received and I think this is a really radical innovation in housing. And it would be very difficult, you can imagine, in a context of anxiety over children, about accessibility to children, the vulnerability of children. It would be difficult to imagine that happening in public housing in Australia, for example. And this is just an image of of one of these winter garden spaces and how they work. Um, So what... So then there's another field. So that's just kind of one area of research, Um, one area that I think there's experimentation going in to housing, which I think is very interesting. But, of course, there's another area that we've been looking at, which is the cluster apartment that's emerging in cooperative housing, particularly in Switzerland, but also you see it occasionally in Germany. And this is really, really interesting. And what's interesting about it to us isn't the cooperative structure itself. I don't have a nostalgia necessarily for cooperatives. What I'm really interested in is how we find spatial transformation that involves both governance and and changes in the way we organize ourselves in space. Because I think in housing, it's critical that those two things happen together. Um, And what we see with the cooperative um, housing in Zurich, and if you can see these drawings, is that all of these different projects experiment with the different number of people that can live together in housing, right? It's an open question. And this is why I was asking, really interested in asking the guys before about what the scale is of the number of people that can live together. It's a totally open question. They're saying, and, you know, I've spoken to the architects that are employed by the Umbrella Cooperative for some of these projects, and they say, yeah, we don't know what the answer is. We, is, it nine, is it five bedrooms with nine people living together? Does that form a stable unit of population that are able to live, negotiate their differences together? Is it, is it 10 bedrooms and 25 people living together? There's one I've heard of that's 25 bedrooms. Where's the, so there's this real question around how does the diagram of organisation work and, and where, where is it stable and where is it unstable? So I'm just going to take you through just a couple of these. Um, One is craftwork one, or sometimes it gets called Heisenholz in in Switzerland um, by Adrian Strike Architects. And where it's really interesting is when you start to look at the plans. So in some ways, it's not unlike um, the model apartment that I showed you, except there's not really a hierarchy in the bedroom. So each floor has two apartments, so the purple at either end of the apartments. This is the way one of them is organised. In this, I'll describe to you the people that live in this particular configuration. There's two women over, single women over the age of 65 that live in those two rooms. There's two single parents that live in these two rooms uh, with a child under 10 each. And there's a couple who are at university together that are down here. They share um, a, a dining room, a living room, a kitchen. Initially, each room has an ensuite. Initially, the rooms were built with a kitchenette, like a micro kitchen, because no one believed that they would want to cook uh, together all the time. But they're fine cooking together all the time. And they said they'd much prefer the storage space rather than that. And I think when I first read about this, so you've got women over the age of 65. We know in Australia that's the fastest emerging group for homelessness. Two children under the age of 10 living with in an environment um, of adults that aren't blood relatives. That's extraordinary. That's radical. Um, and these people are, are cohabiting really, really happily together. Key to the success of this project, um, with, we think, is the fact that these people don't just get lumped together. Um, they... The, um, at the outset of a project, the way that the cooperative works is that they announce they've got a new site and they've got a new project in development and they call for expressions of interest for people to be involved in working groups, knowing that if you are a part of a working group, you make friends with other people and that you may then um, be more successful in, a, in um, submitting an application to join. Um, and then what happens is, is through... Um, The work together on these cooperatives, people form meaningful relationships of trust, which is really key in this, and then they form households and they make an application for one of these apartments. I think one of the really um, important things about it is that the apartments are completely autonomous. If they fail, if they have a falling out, it's uh, it's their responsibility to resolve it and to find to either evict the person or that for them to leave and for their group then to find someone else to replace them. It's completely their responsibility and their risk. And I think there's a kind of um, there's a really important aspect of autonomy and responsibility in that that I know that the housing associations in the UK find very difficult to um, to accept. Um, they, they're they're the the, the pop housing public housing or social housing populations are much more passive in the relationship to governance in the UK than what they are in the, in here, and I think and what's really important about this I think is its capacity for social resilience. So at the scale of the building block, so the so the important thing about this block is that it this building is that it works at several scales. It's always um, it's always. Uh, each individual apartment has its own living space. Between the apartments, there's another um, outdoor space that gets used a lot in summer where the two apartments on each floor come together. Downstairs, there's an even larger dining room that means the whole building can come together and they sort of come together on Friday nights in summer and they have big barbecues outside and do things. But there's a, there's a recognition that there's a kind of um, um, spatial infrastructure for meaningful... Um, relationships in the building, that these things don't just happen, they need to be both governed and managed, and that they need spatial infrastructure to happen, which I think is really key. So, there's another bit of really, really um, interesting work that some of the students in city design have done, and it's, it's going to be really difficult to see, but I'll describe it to you. Um, So, I had two of my students go and do their um, master's thesis um, in Zurich, sitting with the cooperatives. And one of the students, um, Lana, was looking really particularly at a comparative analysis of the development of public space. And I think um, this is one of the really important things about these projects, is that they never give you public space, uh, shared space, the living space within these cluster apartments, as a kind of, as a single open space, Right. It's not like the, um, the single-family dwelling like that. What they create is a series of smaller, more distributed living spaces that mean that there's always room for small groups within the large cluster to come together in conversation. The organisation and the spatial performance recognises the need for negotiation and conversation. And I think these, these are incredibly subtle but incredibly important aspects of the functioning of these buildings. Um, and this image, which... Oh, it's really difficult to... It's almost impossible to see. It's her working through that. So I'm just going to finish it there and, and I'll leave it with those projects. But I guess what I would say is that I think um, the, the, the conclusion that we've come to in the MA City Design and the research we're doing is that real change in housing at the scale of the dwelling unit is where we need to find the kind of um, infrastructural um, transformations to address problems like isolation and loneliness to do with climate change, to do with how we start to think through the problem of our relationship to our non-human world and our responsibility to to the complex ecologies around us in a new way, in a different way. And that that resides in the problem of the single-family dwelling itself, and we need to find ways out of that. But the new never comes from a tabula rasa, right? It's not like we just pull the new out. It's always in relationship and in... Um, in response to what is existing and, and, and what we have now. And so it's, for us, it's this finding the relationship between transformed spatial performance, recognising that hierarchies and individualization versus collective really matter, and then finding the new governance systems within the legal frameworks that we have now, um, and that's where we're finding change. So thank you very much. Does anyone have any questions?
0: Anyone at all? Everyone just wants a drink. Maybe have a drink. Oh, yeah, cool. Oh, sorry, your hand was <laughs> up. Oh, okay. Um, hi. Uh, hi.
1: Uh, yeah. um, I noticed that the that model by... Uh, Henry Roberts, yeah. of that proposal for the house. Yeah. Although being small, really echoed some of the design of the Grand British um, Country Manor House oh. in, in its kind of spatial, spatial organisation, being so rigid and kind of planned out like that. Yeah. And I was wondering whether you saw, see any kind of parallels between, I don't know, maybe the, the legacy of that um, way of thinking and perhaps why that, that model didn't work so well
0: as a model for social housing.
1: Oh, I think this model worked really well for social housing. I mean, I still think... Yeah, well, it, it's... It's not, it's not a question of whether it worked well or not. It's a question of did it repeat, and it repeated really successfully, right? But in terms of the um, English country house, it's really interesting, right? Robin Evans would say, well, the, the thing that's interesting to look at the English country house is the... Emergence of the corridor as a separating mechanism between servant and served in the sort of 17th century, as the beginnings of a reasoning, spatial reasoning, right? And that's where he brings all of these things together, which I think is there's probably some some truth in that. I mean, I always find it fascinating when I go into an English country house and it's an enfilade of rooms. You know, we just go room to room to room, and there's no corridor, and it, you you know, you're in everything, and it's such a extraordinarily um, different kind of spatial experience. Um, I think, I mean, any, any um, you know, upper-class country house that you go into that's been built since 1850 is going to have a basic principle of these rooms. may not have a bathroom inside even yet, but it'll have a basic principle like that. So... so.
0: Thank you so much. That was so fascinating. Thank um, you. I'm just wondering, um, how far do you think we are in Australia... Um, from from realizing this kind of development mm. and, and getting this happening
1: oh look the stuff that Nightingale have been doing at the scale of the building block in terms of innovating around shared in, shared infrastructure and amenity is is extraordinary I mean it is so unique I mean you know the British can't come close, really. I mean, they can't even imagine the um, agency to begin to say, well, I'll find my own finance and let's get together and pool resources. It's just extraordinary. Um, so I think in that sense, we're really innovative And there's a, but there's massive questions, of course, around land value and, for example, can you do it in Sydney? And my understanding is, and these guys that spoke earlier will have a much better sense of that, is that one of the real difficulties in Sydney is the need to rely on... Um, public land or or high levels of public um, subsidy to get it done because of land value differences but in terms of how we begin to um, challenge the this stri- this really strict definition of the of the single family dwelling I think we're a really long way from it but most people are you know and and it's and it's, most people look at the cluster apartments in Switzerland and they go, oh, God, you know, those German, the German speakers, they're, they're, they're so comfortable with co- collectivity, you know. And, and I don't think it's cultural. I really don't think it's cultural, but I think we need to build, we need to find a way of building prototypes, which is why the project that these guys are doing is so exciting, if they can do that. Because that's where we've been, where we've been most innovative with housing, particularly between the wars, uh, before before a lot of these diagrams were really fixed, before they'd been calcified in place by a confluence of finance and construction systems after World War II. Um, we built lots of prototypes and it's that getting lay people, because you know, if we, if we agree that only, what is it, under 20% of housing is built by architects, like 15 or 16, 17% or something, it's tiny, right? Um, but that's not the important fact. The important fact is that architecture resides in the drawing, not in the building. And it's the, and it's the discursive content in our relationship to how we can push that in the drawing that really matters, right? So we've got the capacity to, to begin to develop the ideas, but we've got to build the prototypes to let other people experience it so they can ask their home builders to start to do different things. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard work. But we have to do it. <laughs> Yes. Just so everyone can hear, behind you. Thank you.
0: With intergenerational housing... Yeah. Um, ..I'm wondering if there are some, any particularly good examples that come to mind?
1: Oh, I think the best one is Heisenholtz, the one that I showed you. I honestly... I mean, I think it's because... You know, people... Are, and, and one of the speakers earlier held up the example of the um, Old Ladies Housing Cooperative in, in England, which lots of people will have seen published... But none of them have the, even it, I don't think, has the, the comprehensiveness of governance model that the cooperatives in Switzerland bring to the housing project. It ended up being delivered like a standard housing project. So, you know, everyone pretty much has individual ownerships and they might have something, like a, something that looks like a strata body where they negotiate difference, but it doesn't demand the same kind of almost... Um, Liberal democratic um, negotiating amongst residents, which I think is where the real strength of these projects are, because in that negotiation we can find we find who we are together. That negotiation is incredibly important. And so, so just coming back to to older people, that that's the that's the one that I think is really amazing.
0: but, but is that designed to evolve as these people shift from one? generation to another. I'm I'm aware of Japanese houses that are designed to do that.
1: Um, Yes. It's, well, okay, so here's the thing, right? I think that um, the statistics are now that all of us will only spend um, something on average about three months in acute aged care. And The problem is is that we're telling ourselves a story around ageing that says that um, institutional care is bad, none of us want to go into the kind of institutional care that my grandmother was in, nightmare, ageing in place at home is good, the state or whoever will deliver care in 15 minute increments, three times a day, um, so that we can stay within the neighbourhoods where our children and friends are and where we grew up, Right. But, of course, the problem we're facing is acute isolation and loneliness, this awful existential crisis. Um, So the housing that we're building to be... There's not very much good housing that's allowing that transformation to the last stage of life because the last stage of life now is becoming so short, you know, three months in acute care. And most of these other projects can handle a level of mobility, challenged mobility. So one of the... One of the things that events that happened in this project that I thought was really indicative of its capacity for resilience was that someone someone down in the lower floors had a stroke and had care being delivered twice a day, but not for dinner. And so seven of the cluster apartments drew up a roster and he had somewhere to go every night for dinner because they were doing it together anyway, right? And to me that's just a perfect functioning at that scale, right? it's, it's you can see the different use values that each scale has. The block has a use value, the cluster has a use value. So yeah, I, I haven't seen anything better than that. Yeah. I think that's it. No other questions? No? I'd really like a drink. If <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Empavilion. <laughs>
0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.